Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. 50 years ago this week in 1969, Apollo 11 landed the first person on the moon. Today's episode is with Dr. Jörg Matthias de Terman, who is an Associate Professor of History at Virginia Commonwealth University in Qatar. He's also Associate Editor for the Arabian Peninsula of the Review of Middle East Studies, and he is also the author of Space, Science and the Arab World, Astronauts, Observatories and Nationalism in the Middle East, published by Arbitoris in 2018. In your book, you talk about the Arab conquest of space. Is that a very conscious use of uh, terminology that refers to the pre-modern Arab world, the the golden age? And if it is, uh, why is it appropriate when we look at the uh, Arab participation in space sciences in the modern period? The term golden age perhaps has been overused and it has been has certainly been criticized rightly by many historians of science and by many world historians not because it is bad to celebrate arab achievement and medieval muslim achievement the world needs to know about these achievements of arab and muslim scientists also as a way to counter stereotypes and islamophobia the golden age is a really good keyword and catchword for Muslim contributions to global science. However, unfortunately, the term golden age almost implies that there was a silver age or that at some point Arab and Islamic civilization reaches its high point, reaches its peak and almost by extension then goes into decline or goes into stagnation. And that's a narrative that many, many people have criticized, right? And the more we exaggerate the golden age of Arabic and Islamic science, the more we exaggerate what comes after it, the more we exaggerate a decline or stagnation or an ending of the golden age. So I agree with many historians of science and world historians who don't like the term golden age of Arabic science for that reason. And by the way, also as an analytical category, Golden age is very vague, right? What is a golden age? How do we define a golden age? When does a golden age begin? When does it end? Uh, And so on. There are a lot of problems with that. Nevertheless, the golden age exists as an idea, right? Many people in the Arab world and outside of the Arab world and Muslim world have this idea of flourishing of Arabic and Islamic science in the past. And they use and mobilize this idea as a resource for modern astronomical space programs and science programs more broadly. When an Arab astronomer or space scientist goes to a politician and explains why that politician should spend millions or billions of dinars or rials or or dollars on a space program, the astronomer and space uh, scientist can argue, well, this is about bringing back the golden age. This is about bringing a renaissance of the Arab nation, right? So the golden age is important as an idea, even if we don't like that term golden age as an, as an analytical category in representing the, uh, the Middle Ages. So I think our listeners would be quite keen to know who are the first Arab astronauts, uh, what nation states that they come from and, and when did they travel to space? 
the first Arab and Muslim astronaut, has also been the first member of a royal family to go into space. And his name is Sultan bin Salman al Saud, a son of the current king of Saudi Arabia, Salman. He went to space in 1985 on board the space shuttle Discovery as part of an Arabsat mission. So Arabsat, this common Arab satellite communications organization, was sending its first satellites into orbit in 1985. It did so on a European Ariane rocket, but also on a NASA National Aeronautics and Space Administration Space Shuttle Discovery. And as part of this NASA Space Shuttle Discovery mission that carried this second Arab satellite into Earth orbit, an Arab national, a representative of Arabsat, was chosen to accompany this satellite into space. And because Saudi Arabia was the largest shareholder of Arabsat, Saudi Arabia could pick one of its nationals. It held a competition and the winner of that competition ultimately was a Saudi prince, at the time a son of the governor of Riyadh, who had a background in communication, working for Saudi television, so somebody who worked in the field that satellites were supposed to serve, but also somebody who had a pilot's license, somebody who understood flight. So Sultan bin Salman al Saud became the Arab world's and the Muslim world's first astronaut, at the same time as he also became a national hero for Saudi Arabia. And in 2018, he was also named the head of the newly established Saudi Arabian Space Agency. In 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded, creating a setback for the entire US Space Shuttle program. Because of safety concerns, space shuttles were grounded, preventing the preventing American astronauts from going into space, but also preventing American allies such as Saudi Arabia or American partners such as Saudi Arabia to have their astronauts be part of US-led missions. However, another Arab country had a very, very strong relationship with the Soviet Union, that is Syria. And we can still see the relationship between Damascus and Moscow stronger than ever in the ongoing Syrian civil war. And as part of this relationship between Moscow and Damascus, the Soviet Union invited a Syrian cosmonaut, a Syrian space traveler, to join a mission to the space station Mir. And that happened in 1987. And a Syrian Air Force officer by the name of Mohammed Faris then became the second Arab space traveller. The 1969 moon landings had an unintended consequence of the overview effect, uh, sometimes described as Earthrise, that is the observation of the planet from the moon as being something fragile and puts humanity into perspective. Can we observe a similar effect in the Arab world with regards to the Arab conquest of space? When the first Arab astronauts went into space, and when they came back, they did so as 
national heroes, as representatives of their specific nations, as whose loyal subjects they were also seen. Prince Sultan bin Salman al-Saud was a prince, a member of the House of Saud, whose name itself is on the name of the country, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Muhammad Fadis being an Air Force officer, also being somebody who is strongly identified with the Syrian regime, with the Syrian government, with the Syrian state. At the same time as these people became national heroes, they also looked at Earth from space and they shared with other astronauts and cosmonauts a view of Earth without any borders, without any countries, a view in which the conflicts over territory, over land, seemed meaningless. And these space travelers also saw the fragility of Earth, of this tiny blue planet in the nothingness of space, our own spaceship Earth. And they developed a planetary consciousness, a consciousness of Earth as one whole, as one planet. And they developed a cosmopolitan consciousness. They became citizens of the world in some ways, citizens of the cosmos, right? As people who belonged and cared for the planet as a whole at the same time as they became these national heroes. And this term cosmopolitanism, as you've defined it or, or introduced it, is something that you use in your book to describe what's going on in the Arab world. Could you maybe explain to us a little bit further as to what your definition of cosmopolitanism is in this context? Cosmopolitanism literally means citizenship of the world. A cosmopolitan is a citizen of the cosmos. This term has been used in the field of Middle East studies to describe the diverse society of early 20th century Alexandria, for instance, or early 21st century Dubai. And this term has also been much discussed in the field of Middle East studies. Some people don't like it. They feel cosmopolitanism is a too positive term, perhaps, in order to describe the harsh reality sometimes of the segregation that exists in a highly diverse place such as Dubai. However, I still find this term very, very fitting because of the association of cosmos with outer space. Right, The space travelers of the Soviet space program have been described as cosmonauts, as those who go, those navigators who go into the cosmos. And I also believe that space scientists and astronauts perhaps have had more of a planetary consciousness than perhaps even the average inhabitant of early 20th century Alexandria or early 21st century Dubai. Currently, we don't have a national space station. We only have an international space station, ISS. A lot of astronomical research programs are global because we're dealing essentially with one sky. The sky that you can see in Dubai or from Dubai is not different from the sky that you could see on another place on the same latitude. 
And astronomers have been using observatories across the world, connected with one another, to make important discoveries. This has been especially true in exoplanet research. So one of the methods for finding planets outside of our solar system is to observe a planet continuously, to look at the amount of light that has been coming from that star. And if the amount of light that comes from that star drops at regular intervals, this could be because there's a planet moving between the star and us, the observer. For that, we need to observe that star all the time, right, in order to see and detect those tiny dips in the light curve. Which means if you're an astronomer in Qatar and you're trying to discover these kinds of planets, you can't just have an observatory in Qatar. Ideally, you need to have observatories around the world so that whenever on one place it becomes day or on one day on one place it becomes cloudy or rainy, another observatory can pick up the observation of that star in order to get to that wonderful continuous light curve. So astronomers have been networking with one another, have been connecting observatories across the world, perhaps more than sometimes geneticists would have connected their laboratories. Astronomers are also thinking globally in terms of where are the best observatory conditions. Qatar, for instance, is not a very good place for optical astronomy. It's very low, very close to sea level. There are lots of particles, dust, sand in the air. There's a lot of humidity. It's much better to have an observatory at a drier place, at a place higher up. So, for instance, the main observatory of the Qatar Exoplanet Survey has been in New Mexico, for instance. And this is something that is not unique to the Arab world. The European Southern Observatory, ESO, is not somewhere in Southern Europe. It is in Chile. It is on the Southern Hemisphere and so on. So astronomers have had this consciousness of the planet as a whole, of perhaps being citizens of the planet as a whole, perhaps more than many scientists of other fields or many other perhaps non-scientists even. I suppose our listeners would be familiar with the space race with regards to the USSR and the United States, but might be asking the question of what are the motivations of the Arab states to be involved beyond the military side and the rocket technology uh, of the space race? Beyond purely military applications of rockets in particular, Arab rulers have also been interested in the prestige that space research can bestow on a country. Space is one of those frontiers that is very much associated with the future. So if you are a country that is boldly going into space, then you are also a country that is associated with the future, with the next step of humanity, with humanity leaving this planet, potentially colonizing other worlds. And of course, Arab countries have faced a lot of criticism. They have on occasion been accused of backwardness, of conservatism, 
of reactionary policies, so things that are very distant from the future. So in order to counter those negative perceptions of Arab countries, of Arab regimes, Many Arab governments have been interested in being seen as pioneers of humanity's quest of going into space. In addition, many Arab countries early on have also seen the economic benefits of space technology and wider political benefits in addition to the purely sort of military aspect. I mentioned 1967 already, the year that the Lebanese Rocket Society and its space program uh, was essentially shut down, a year when also the Six-Day War against Israel brought a setback to different Arab regimes, the Egyptian one in particular, the Syrian one in particular, and also their rocketry program. So after 1967, the Egyptian state was more content content with importing Soviet rockets rather than developing their own rockets. However, the 1967 war also brought about a consciousness among Arab countries that they need to be strong and that they need to be united against Israel and Israel's Western allies. And they've seen the potential of satellites in particular to strengthen the Arab world to strengthen an imagined common Arab nation, to bind Arab countries together. And soon after this military defeat of 1967, Arab communications minister got together and made the first step towards establishing the Arab Satellite Communications Organization, or in short, ArabSat, an organization that launched its first satellite, Arabsat 1A, in 1985, and an organization that still exists. It is headquartered in Riyadh. It has shareholders from across the Arab world. At the time, it even had the Palestine Liberation Organization as, at the time, a non-state actor, as a shareholder of this pan-Arab organization. And the idea was that with satellites, Arabs from Morocco all the way to Oman could communicate with one another. They could share information with one another. And they were less reliant on Western-controlled satellite organizations, such as Intelsat, especially in the case of a major conflict with Israel and Israel's Western allies. So are we talking about an expression of pan-Arabism here? Is this uh, pan-Arabism politics playing out with regards to the Arab participation in in space and the creation of satellites? Absolutely. There's something that I would call space Arabism to describe the connection between outer space and Arab nationalism and pan-Arabism. And this, this space Arabism has been particularly strong in the satellite arena. So the Arab Satellite Communications Organization, ArabSat, was itself the result of this feeling of collectiveness of Arab countries wanting to pool their resources in order to create a stronger front against Israel in particular. At the same time, the satellites were also meant to strengthen Arab nationalism in turn, right? So if Arabs across this huge region from the Atlas Mountains to the Arabian Sea could watch the same television programs, could watch 
the same people speaking could watch the same football matches and other programs. The idea was that this could also bind Arab countries together more culturally across the divides of politics, across the divides of different vernaculars. And one can indeed see, not yet in the 1970s, but certainly by the 1990s and 2000s, indeed a bigger pan-Arab consciousness that has been brought about by pan-Arab satellite channels. In particular, for instance, the channels Al Jazeera, which is Doha-based, and Al Arabiya, which has been Dubai-based. And one can argue that Al Jazeera in particular had an important role in making the Egyptian revolution of 2011 and the Tunisian revolution of 2011 and the Syrian uprising of 2011 not just national incidents, but making them into an Arab Spring. It was satellite television broadcasting live from places such as Tahrir Square, which turned this localized, perhaps, uprising or this nationalized uprising into a pan-Arab event, fostering a pan-Arab identity even further. At the same time, there were worries about how these satellites could be used for subversive purposes. So, for instance, one of the great benefits of a satellite network could be live broadcasting of football matches, for instance. So in the 1980s already, Arab countries saw the potential of, let's say, broadcasting a match between the Libyan football team and the Saudi Arabian football team. However, censors at the same time worried about live broadcasting of football matches meant that one could not fully control, for instance, the appearance of political slogans. What if somebody in the audience, in the spectatorship of that football stadium was showing slogans that were against one regime or another. And these images were then being broadcast live to the citizens of this country. And these kinds of anxieties about power of satellite television have continued until today. Al Jazeera has been seen as quite instrumental, quite powerful in, for instance, portraying the Arab Spring, in documenting the revolution of Tahrir Square in Egypt. At the same time, counter-revolutionary actors, more reactionary actors, actors that sought to prevent the spreading of revolution, then became equally anxious about the power of Al Jazeera. And currently, Al Jazeera is being banned and blocked in Saudi Arabia or in the United Arab Emirates or in Bahrain because it has this subversive potential. Is it worth mentioning the nomenclature of space exploration employed by by the Arab states? The nomenclature of Arab space programs and modern Arab astronomy is very interesting. So we see in different cases the employment of national names and terms. So Qatar, through its Qatar National Research Fund, itself part of Qatar Foundation, has been sponsoring the Qatar Exoplanet Survey, an endeavor to find extrasolar planets, so planets outside of our solar system. And so far, the Qatar Exoplanet Survey has discovered 10 planets, 
which had all named Qatar. So we have Qatar 1B, discovered in 2010, and then when we have Qatar 2B, Qatar 3B, Qatar 4B, etc. So one could say that this modern astronomical research program is also part of putting Qatar on the map, not just of global astronomical research, but literally putting the small city-state of, of Qatar on the map of the universe. In 2020, the United Arab Emirates uh, is planning to launch the Emirates Mars mission. This is a mission that sends unma an unmanned orbiter to study the Martian atmosphere. The launch itself in 2020 coincides with the Dubai Expo, and the orbiter called Al-Amal, or HOPE, is supposed to reach Mars in 2021, coinciding with the 50th anniversary of the United Arab Emirates as a federal country. So we can see nationalism reflected in uh, the discoveries themselves, such as Qatar 1B, this planet, and in the names of the programs. We've described the Arab space program from a nationalist state point of view and an international point of view. But perhaps it's better for us to think about it, as you've described in your book, as these two aspects being hand in hand when it comes to space exploration. There is no purely nationalist space program. And there is no purely internationalist or cosmopolitan or planet-wide space program. No country, arguably, could ever have an ambitious space program without engaging in some form of international collaboration or international exchange or benefiting from knowledge from outside their borders. So even the Cold War superpowers of the United States and the Soviet Union, they, for instance, relied on German rocket expertise that came out of the Nazi V2 program in particular. If a superpower wasn't able to just have a space program just by itself without getting anything, taking anything from other countries or partnering with other countries, then minor powers or middle powers such as Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates can't do it either. And indeed, for instance, the United Arab Emirates Mars mission is supposed to be launched not from the UAE, but from Japan, not using a UAE rocket, but using a Japanese rocket. The Emiratis satellite program has benefited substantially from South Korean expertise. The Qatar Exoplanet Survey has relied on a network of observatories and astronomers from across the world. The Syrian space mission of 1987 that brought that second Arab space traveler, this Syrian cosmonaut of Mohammed Faris, into Earth orbit, was part of Intercosmos, a Soviet-led international space program. And the mission was to the space station Mir, a name that means both world and it means peace. So almost at every instance in the Arab conquest of space, in Arab space exploration, one can see connections with other countries, one can see partnerships and exchanges with other countries that often depend on an idea and ideology of nationalism, of cosmopolitanism, 
uh, of an idea that science is a global enterprise, that astronomers are all advancing humanity together, an idea that astronauts are not just the representatives of one specific country, but that astronauts are the messengers of all mankind, of all humanity to go into space. The planetary, the nation-state, the national and nationalist, and the cosmopolitan and the internationalist, they've always existed in side by side and arguably will exist side by side in the future, even as we now see the rise of sort of private space companies. And that's a great way to start to think of the end of this conversation, which is what is the future of the space race, of the participation of the Arab world in space looking like, particularly with the rise of private enterprise and private companies? Some Arab countries have long been very business-minded, have long tried to turn themselves into hubs of global commerce and global transportation. So if you think of, for instance, the small Gulf cities, city-states of Abu Dhabi, of Doha, of Dubai, they've for decades now try to turn themselves into hubs of aviation or hubs of shipping or hubs of communications through such channels such as Al Jazeera or Al Arabiya. So it just it makes sense that these countries would then also invest in private space companies. And for instance, Abu Dhabi has been a major investor in Virgin Galactic, for instance, they've also become major clients of global space corporations. Arab countries have become increasingly interested in space industries, space science, space technology for various purposes. One purpose is obviously the military and security purposes. So Arab countries have been interested, just like others, in spy satellites, reconnaissance satellites that could monitor borders or could monitor shipping, could monitor the um, movement of people across large desert spaces. For instance, Arab countries have been interested in rockets, missiles, missile defense systems, also in some kind of space and missile race with other actors in the region, such as Iran. So as Iran develops its rocket and missile programs, so do then other Arab countries trying to catch up with the, these regional competitors. Arab countries have also seen other sort of economic benefits of and prospects and potentials of space technology. So Arab countries have produced leading airlines such as Emirates or Etihad or Qatar Airways, one of the big technology moves in the aviation industry has been onboard Wi-Fi, a movement towards the towards a world where we could all be on our plane and we could all be live streaming videos and we could all be using our social media as we would do on Earth, on the ground. But that means obviously that we need a very, very strong satellite connection from our plane. So... Countries such as the United Arab Emirates have been very interested in satellite technology for that reason. Different Arab countries have been and will probably continue to compete with one another over influence in the media sphere, right? over influence in, on 
audiences of satellite television. So even though Al Jazeera, for instance, has been blocked by some of its Arab neighbors, Qatar is unlikely to give up the soft power that a satellite network such as Al Jazeera gives it. And nor are the other Arab countries unlikely to divest from satellite technology and satellite television and satellite networks and so on. So I foresee more investment really across a variety of fields in, in space sciences. If you'd like to find out more on this topic, head to our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where there will be a relevant bibliography on the topic discussed today. Do follow us on our Facebook group as well. I'm Thailand Gingo. Thank you for listening. <laughs>